We um, are in the sixth of a seven-week series. Next week will be the last week. We want to tie, them, tie up some loose ends today and then follow it uh, up next week with a final message as we try to be able to finish this uh, series, Follow Me. And the only thing we've done in this series is find where Jesus uh, makes that little expression, follow me, or something really close to it. And we've just taken some scripture passages, and we've just been able to see what we could be able to glean out of those scripture passages. And today is no different. If you have your Bible, would you open it to the Gospel of John, please? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, the gospel uh, that was written by the one that the Bible calls uh, the beloved, the one who loved Jesus, um, the disciple that lived the longest, that uh, died. He was exiled to an island and ended up dying there on that island. We don't know this for sure, but tradition has it that most of the other uh, apostles that we understand uh, as uh, the leading, the 12 apostles, they uh, were martyred. We don't know that for sure. That is Christian tradition. But we do know that at the end of his life, John was in Patmos and he was exiled and he wrote the book of the Revelation there. But there's also a Gospel of John, chapter 1, if you have your Bible, please. And we're going to look at the calling of some of the first disciples. This We've seen some callings of the disciples in some of the other Gospels and the way that some other Gospels relay the same thing. This is a different account and maybe the first account, as some Bible scholars would think, that some people had some association with the person that we now know is Jesus, who they thought was a rabbi and just a teacher. John chapter 1 and verse 30, um, 35, I believe. Do we have it up there, Cecil? Uh, the next day, John, now that is not John the writing of the gospel, that is John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist was a prophet. He was calm, he was teaching, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he himself had some disciples that he, were gathering around him. So the next day, John, John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ. Actually, you know, maybe, maybe all of you know this, um, Christ is not Jesus' last name, um, it's his title. And sometimes uh, you will hear him called Jesus the Christ, and it just simply means the Messiah. And so that's where we get that, and that's what that means there. So it's not Jesus Christ, as in his last name. It is Jesus, the Christ, the one who was the Messiah. Okay? 40, verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, and here's our phrase, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. 
Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Um, four times, five times, in that little portion of Scripture, the word found or the word find or have found is used. And that's an interesting word. And you may say, well, why is find an interesting word? Or why is found an interesting word? Because it's not the same word as we may think it is. Um, it's not like the word, like uh, Sue and I are taking a walk, and we're just walking down the street or up Brush Row Road or whatever we're doing on the bike pack or something, and we look down and say, oh, I, a dollar bill. I found that dollar bill. That's not the word that's used here. Uh, the, the, the Greek language was so much more expressive than our language. So when I, when I walk around and, and uh, uh, at the end of the service today, I, I, I find a quarter right here and I give it to one of my boys and say, hey, I found this on the altar today, and that's not the same word. Um, if... Um, we were walking along, and we were walking along that same road, and I looked down, and there was a $100 bill, and I would say, look what I found. That's closer to the word. Even getting closer, even getting closer to the word is my lost cell phone that I have no clue where I've lost it. And Sue and I are walking around our two acres there on Brush Road Row, and back by the shed, all of a sudden, we looked down and said, I found it. That's the word. It's, it's, it's a finding something after you have been searching for. There's an excitement to the word. There's not too much of excitement by me finding a quarter and giving it to Levi. Not too much of excitement in that. There is some excitement in finding a $100 bill, but there is more excitement in finding something that you have been searching for, and that's the word. Um, some of you know I was raised in Kentucky, had a basketball coaching career in Kentucky and some other states, and started my career as a graduate assistant at the University of Kentucky. Way back before I was there, Adolph Rupp was a basketball coach for 40 years, from the 30s into the early 70s. And he was a very superstitious man. And he would spend X amount of time before the games walking around his neighborhood, walking around the Memorial Coliseum back then. If they were on the road, walking around the hotel, he would be looking for a bobby pin. Because if he found a bobby pin, he thought that was really, really good luck. And if he would find a bobby pin, he would say, I found it. That's the word we're dealing with right here. Because he was looking for it, and he found it. Now... You talk to some assistant coaches back there, they got pretty tired of the bus leaving late and everything because he couldn't find his bobby pin, so they started spreading bobby pins around everywhere <laughs> so they wouldn't be late for the game. But that is what it is. I found it. I've been looking for it. I've got excitement in finding this. I've been looking for it after a search. And so four times, five times you see this word found or finding used. What's the next scripture I have here? I think just to go back and just kind of review that, Cecil. You got the next one up here, man? Okay. If you don't have it, I will read it. Um, verse 40, 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find, there's the word, was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we have found, there's the word, the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law five times in about five or six little verses. This word is used. It's actually the word where we get the English word. Now, this is an old word that we don't use anymore. You ever remember people using the word eureka? That's an old word. We don't use that anymore. But it's where we get the word. You find something and you say, eureka! I found it. That's what I've been looking for. Every time this word find or found, it's a form of that word that we now get eureka. And that tells me something about people who follow Jesus, people who respond to this call of follow me. They, 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 they found something they were looking for, and with excitement they said, we have found the Messiah, which means there must be some spiritual hunger already going on in their hearts and lives. There was something they were looking for. There was something they were searching for. The people that respond to the call of Jesus are not just people that are walking down the road one day and life's going on and all of a sudden they think, well, I think I'll find Jesus today. No, it doesn't happen this way. It happens in the lives of people when there's some spiritual hunger, when there's some longings going on. And what we see here is that John the Baptist had two disciples and John the Baptist says, look, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples that left, left John and went to follow Jesus. There must have been some spiritual hunger going on in those two disciples or they wouldn't have aligned themselves with John the Baptist who was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've come to proclaim one that is coming after me. There must have been something going on, some spiritual hunger going on in their life. Andrew was one of those two. The scripture says he went and found his brother Peter. Now he had no reason to be able to go get his brother Peter unless Peter had some type of longing for this as well. If Peter was dull to the things of God, if people was one of those, Peter was one of those people who, who couldn't care less and, and, and he wasn't going to bow his knee to the Messiah, he was only going to be made to do that as we read in the scripture, but he wouldn't have gone look for him. But he went to look for him and told him we have found the one. Friends, people that respond to the call of Jesus have some spiritual hunger going on in their life. They have some spiritual longings going on in their life. Nathaniel was found by Jesus. Uh, excuse me. Philip was found by Jesus, and Philip went and found Nathaniel and said, We have found the one. And Nathaniel goes, and I didn't put it up there. Nathaniel goes, Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he says, well, come on and see and take a look. There must have been something going on in Philip's life. And he knew, and he knew Nathaniel. There was some spiritual hunger going on in these people's lives. They just weren't walking down the street one day. And boom, they decided to become a Christian. There was something going on. And friends, as people respond to the call of Jesus, they're just not walking along, listening to their 
iPod and going around their normal life and have no thoughts of Jesus at all. There is some kind of spiritual hungering going on. It may be working itself out as being a Mormon. It may be working itself out as being a Jehovah's Witness. It may not be true spiritual hunger. and They may not have found the true way yet, but there's some spiritualness. They may be in some kind of new spiritual new age. There's something going on in their life that makes them question, that makes them search, friends. And those are the people that are candidates to respond positively when Jesus says, come and follow me. So the question for me and the question for you and the question for our church is, what do we do to the people that are around us? What do we do to our family members? What do we do to our coworkers? What are we doing as a church of Jesus Christ to fan the flame of spiritual hunger in people's lives? I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody that was spiritually dull, that was drugged to church by someone else, that was there kicking and screaming, that there, that day, that moment, they became a Christian. No, something had to start. That may have started it, but something had to start churning in their spirits. Some type of spiritual hunger. Some type of hole in their heart. Those are the people who are, are ready to accept some type of an invitation from Jesus when he says, come follow me. As a church, as individual Christians, what are we doing from the human perspective? From the human perspective, because there's a divine perspective in all this as well. But what are we doing from the human perspective to fan the flame? To fan the flame. Yeah, I can make my kids come to church, and that's great. Yeah, I can have devotions with my kids, and that's great, and we do. Oh, that's wonderful. But friends, I wonder if fanning the flame has more than making them to go to church, has more to do than making sure we have devotions, more to do than making sure we have prayer time and Prayer before our meals and family prayer. All those things are well and good, but isn't the most important thing to fan the flame is to live a Christian life in front of them. Because let me tell you, if I'm dragging them to church, but there's no symbols of Christianity in my life, I'm turning them away from it. I'm doing them more harm than good by being a hypocrite in front of them. And I bow my head and have prayer before my meals and that's the only time I ever mention the name of Jesus in a good way and they hear me mention the name of Jesus in a cursing way or something. I'm doing more harm than good. See, friends, the major way we fan the flame of spiritual hunger in people's lives is by being a Christian in front of them. And that doesn't necessarily mean laying Christian tracks down or, 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 or witnessing to them all the time. It just means being a Christian in front of them. See, what we're talking about here is what we talk about a lot is scattering. As we leave this place and we scatter, we're still the church of Jesus Christ, and the world needs to see us be the church and be Christians. And that can work out in a multitude of ways as we, from the human perspective, try to fan the flame in lives of coworkers, try to fan the flames in lives of neighbors, try to fan the flame of spiritual hunger in, in, our, in our children. Maybe someone at, at, at work knows you go to church and they maybe ask a little question, a very innocent little question about church or, or about Christianity, and your response can fan the flame. You may, you may 
you may want to go buy them a little book that kind of answered that question. And what you're doing there is trying to fan the flame of spiritual hunger. You're, you're more creative than I on ways to be able to fan the flame of spiritual hunger. But it has a whole lot more to do than, than just dragging people to church or just beating them over the head with the Bible. It has everything to do with living a Christian life in front of them, being salt in life, sharing the love of Jesus fans the flame of spiritual hunger. I just don't think anybody comes to Christ. I don't think anyone accepts and responds positively to a call, come follow me, unless there's something, something. Maybe it's just a little spark. Maybe some little hole in their heart, some longing in their heart that just maybe Maybe I need to look into this person called Jesus. And from the human perspective, as we scatter, can we fan that little flicker? Can we fan that little flicker? Blow on it just a little bit to help it to be able to ignite? Because then, after it ignites and after their hunger becomes more and more, maybe... When they hear the call at this church, another church, at, uh, on TV from Billy Graham, on wherever they may hear it, on the internet, wherever they may hear it, they may respond to come follow me. And if you fan the flame, if you just did a little bit more to help it ignite, you played a little, little human part of that to allow them to say, yes, I will follow Something already going on in Andrew's life because he was following John, the Baptist. Something already going on in these others' lives because they went to their friends and says, we found him. What are you talking about, found him? Yeah, we found the one we've been looking for. Eureka! We found him. Parents, grandparents, and you're more creative than I am. How do you fan the flame? Whatever spiritual hunger there is already there, how do you cultivate that? How do you ignite that even more? I, I, I tell you, one, thing, one way you throw water on that flame is by dragging them to church and them not seeing anything out of Christianity other than the other 160 hours of the week. We talk about Jesus not in a not in a not not in a way like, you know, you better do this and you gotta do this and you're gonna go to hell. But just in a real way, this is why we do things that we do, and this is because of Jesus, this is what has happened to me, and because of Jesus, this is why our family does some things other families don't, and because of Jesus, this is why our family goes some places other families don't, and don't go some places, and this is why you don't have some of the things that other families have. It's, it's just a conversation with, uh, in your home about Jesus, the most natural thing in the world, and in the name of Jesus, in the name of God and Christianity, it's talked about in the home, and it's just a course of conversation in the home. It's just not left up to Sunday morning and I think in some little bitty human way we are doing something because they see that as real it's real I wasn't a Christian until I was 34 years of age but I knew that I knew that I knew all during those 34 years 
that Christianity was real. And the main reason I knew it was real is because of the Christian people that I was associated with as a young person. Being my parents and people they went to church with. And there was some spiritualness in me, even as a pagan basketball coach who wasn't ever living for God. There was some, some spiritualness there because of what had been fanned by my parents and what had been fanned by the people at Central United Methodist Church, and it was there. People who respond to come follow me have something already going on a little bit. It may, be, it may be Mormonism right now. It may be Jehovah's Witness right now. It may be, it may be New Age, some really weird, it may, right now, but there's something there. They know there's something more than just this. That's spiritual. There's some spiritual awakening there. There's, there's one other eureka word in that passage. And in verse 43 of chapter 1, it says that Jesus left and said, finding Philip, he said to Philip, come follow me. Same word. Finding something after you've been looking for it. Now, I don't know in particular why Jesus went and found Philip. Maybe he was told by Andrew and Simon about this guy. I don't know. They both, they both were from uh, Bethsaida, it says in the scripture. Maybe he went to intentionally find him because of what some other people said. But what I want to tell you is that when you find Christ, you'll realize when you find Christ, you found the Messiah. When you find him, you will realize that all along that he's been finding you. He's been searching out you. And that's why he can say in the Gospels that if you will seek, you will find. And as you fan that flame, and there's some kind of seeking, even just a little bit, there's some kind of seeking going on, the promise, if they're seeking, the promise, therefore, is they're seeking that we serve a God who's searching, who's searching for people whose hearts are bent toward him. And no one, no one, because of the love and the grace of the God, no one who's seeking right now, has not found him yet, but seeking right now, no one will not be able to find because he'll find them. He'll find them. Believe with all my heart, there's, 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 there's no little pygmy on some island on some name I can't pronounce that's trying to understand that there's a God somewhere that somehow, somehow, someway, God won't find him. It's the love of God. That's a seeking nature of God. Eureka! I found him. No, 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 no. He found me. Eureka, we found the Messiah. No, 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 really. He's been looking for me. Take heart as you fan the flame. Take heart. You got a God who's looking for people with that spiritual hunger going on in their lives. He's looking for them. We do things here at our church just to try to fan the flame of a Spiritual hunger. Try to make things easy on people. You know, this is a really weird example, but there's only one reason. There's only one reason we put these windows in these doors. Okay? Now, if you didn't notice, there wasn't windows in these doors 
for X amount of years. There's only one reason we did that, and it wasn't for you. Because I've seen people over here, especially at these doors and these doors, they open the door and they look for a place to sit and they feel uncomfortable and they don't know what to do. Now they can at least feel a little more comfortable and by looking in the window and see there's a place to sit before they go in and find out there's not one to have to turn around. Anything we can do not to turn people off, make them feel weird. That's what we try to do. That's what we try to do. The reason the coffee is out there, I don't give a rip whether you have coffee here or not. Because I know some people that are here that are, don't even want to be here may feel a little more comfortable if they have a coffee cup in their hand. They don't have anybody to talk to, but at least they have a coffee. They may make them feel a little more comfortable. And the more comfortable they feel, the more chance that they're going to be open to the message. That their, that their, that their resistance is not, is not up. And they've had a bad experience in the lobby, so they come in here with their resistance. No, the more we can do and all that kind of thing, it more it breaks people's barriers down and makes it easier. Doesn't assure it, but makes it easier that they will say yes when they hear the call to follow me. Can I show you one other passage of Scripture? This is just to kind of tie up loose ends. And I don't like to do what I'm doing. I, I like to, to shift gears a little bit from spiritual hunger and show you one other thing. If you have your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 18. And as I, as I try to look at all the scriptures that have follow me in it, I think of this one in Luke chapter 18. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. And some of you remember that. And in the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's a real seeker because he says, hey, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus tells him, he says, well, you need to, you know, make sure you obey the commandments, da, 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 da. We told you that Jesus, deal, three or four weeks ago, Jesus deals with people differently. So he gives these, the rich young ruler a different answer. Go, you know, go obey the commandments. Oh, I've obeyed all the commandments. Okay, well, go sell everything you have to the poor and then come and follow me. And this text says that the, the rich young ruler went away sad. Went away sad because his possessions were great. That story of the rich young ruler starts in Luke 18 and verse 18. And I want to pick it up at verse 26 because Jesus said he went away sad. And then Jesus tells the thing that we've all heard, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, didn't say it's impossible. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Obviously because he gets his eyes on his possessions. And the rich young ruler went away sad because his possessions were great. It's what the text says. So Jesus tells the rest of his disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples just get all freaked out. Because in that day and time, if you were rich, that was a symbol of God's blessing upon you. Now, they don't understand. A rich man can't go to heaven. They just get all freaked out. And verse 26 of Luke 18 says, uh, Those who heard this asked, Then who can then be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter says, I, Peter, Peter, I just like Peter because he was honest, okay? 
He's just honest. He's sticking his foot in his mouth. He's saying the wrong thing sometimes, but he's just honest. And God can deal with an honest person, okay? Uh, Peter just says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. Kind of saying, what's in it for us, you know? And you notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that statement. He says, we've left everything to follow you. And then Jesus says in 29, truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age as in the age to come eternal life. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus promises that when you've paid the price and the cost of the Christian life has really cost you something, there's a reward in this thing for you. I have to be an honest preacher. Last week I preached about the cost of discipleship. I said there's a price to pay for this. Salvation is free, but there's a price to pay for this soon enough down the line because you're going to be asked to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you weren't here, listen to that podcast last week. There is a price to pay for this thing for anyone who's really following Christ. But I would not be an honest preacher to just tell you there's a price to pay without telling you there's a reward to gain. Well, you shouldn't do it because of the reward. Well, yeah. But he is not rebuked. And Jesus just plainly says, truly I tell you, No one who's paid a price to follow me will fail to receive many times as much. In another another gospel, it says a hundredfold. And so I just want to be an honest preacher today. And don't leave you last week with just the cost of disciples. I want to say, yeah, there absolutely is a cost of discipleship. There's a price to pay. But for those that pay that price in this place and other places in Scripture, Jesus said there's a reward. There's a reward for people who paid the price. And I don't know how that all works out. I don't know how all that works out. I really don't. The Bible tells us that at the judgment seat, that we're going to be judged by the type of Christian life we live. That's not a heaven or hell judgment. That's been taken care of. But evidently, there are rewards in heaven, and there's not too much scriptural data on that for me to literally tell you what they are. So I don't know, but there is rewards in heaven. Some people speculate that there are different levels of heaven because the Apostle Paul one time says he was called up to the third heaven. I don't know for sure, but I'm telling you that scripture says there are rewards for the Christian who lived a good life. There's a, passage in, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that said, Our work will be presented before the judgment seat of God, and what has been of wood will burn up. What has been of straw will burn up. But what has been of, of gold and precious metals will last. I don't know at all what that means. I really don't, can't explain that to you. Because I don't think Scripture outlines it, but it clearly says in this place and other places that for those who have paid the price... For those who've denied themselves, taken up their cross, whatever you want to call that, Jesus plainly says, without reservation, without embarrassment, don't worry about it, man. You're going to be repaid many times over.
And don't feel like you're bad if you say amen to that. <laughs> Scripture. You know what the biggest reward is? I don't know what that reward will look like. And I, I mean, I really don't. Streets of gold, I don't, mansion, I don't have any clue. I mean, I really don't. There's just going to be rewarded some way. But you know what one of those rewards is that happens in the here and now? One of the rewards for following Jesus is Jesus. Now, if you don't get that, I hope it just means that you're young in the faith. You haven't been walking long enough to really get that. Is there a bigger earthly reward to following Jesus than Jesus? You get Jesus. Here's the only way I can illustrate that. You know, Levi's a pretty good kid most of the time, but he's a pain sometimes too. There's a cost for adopting Levi. Not a financial cost. I, you know, we... That was worked out for us. You know, there's just a cost to having Levi in our house. Let's just be honest. I love him to death. Wouldn't take a million dollars for him, but I wouldn't give you a nickel one for another one just like him. <laughs> there's a cost for having Levi. But you know what the reward for having Levi is? Levi. You get that, parents? Kids are expensive. <laughs> Kids are a pain. They get on your last nerve. You, you can't go everywhere you want to go and you have to pay $9 at Bob Evans for chicken things that he likes and all that kind of stuff. And but the reward for the cost of Levi is Levi. The reward for your hardship and the money that you'll spend in raising children. You know how early, more early you could retire if you didn't have kids? <laughs> the reward... For that are your children. Earthly reward. I don't know too much about those heavenly rewards. They're there and I, I can't explain to them. But the earthly reward for following Jesus is Jesus. You get Jesus. So I didn't want to finish last week's message about a cost without telling you there's a corresponding reward. And Peter says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And Jesus says, man, you're going to be repaid many times over, no matter what you're going through, no matter what price you're paying because you're a Christian. Jesus says, you're going to be repaid. You're going to be repaid many times over. I wish I was smart enough to tell you what that means. I just proclaim it to you.
Father, um, we kind of touched on two really different topics today. The whole spiritual hunger thing is a challenge for us. It's what are we doing to fan the flame so people can more easily respond to Jesus' call to follow me. The other is a, hopefully is a comforting thing for us that the, the grief and the trouble and the heartache and the denying ourselves and the price to pay and the cost and all that, that that most of us in here have dealt with that Jesus unashamedly talks about there is a reward for that and we will be paid back many times over. And Father, I don't think there's anyone in here that's just doing it for the reward, but there's a reward. May we hold on. May we hold on to the, the difficulty and the grief that we're going through. The price for some people in this place right now, I know the price is high. I know the price is very high. May, may those people especially be encouraged by whatever reward means. The reward is many times greater than whatever price we're paying. With our heads bowed, if you'd like to respond to the Father here in some kind of way right there in your seat, he's prompted you today on fanning the flame, he's said something to you about a reward. You can respond in prayer. Joe and Greg are coming to open up our communion tables and we can respond at the table or at the altar, wherever. But just take a moment of silence before I open up the table. Any response you want to make, talk to your father about fanning the flame or about was betrayed he took bread and after he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body that's given for you would you do this in remembrance of me scripture continues to say that in the same way after supper he took the cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant that's in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me scripture tells us to proclaim the lord's death Please continue to worship in the way you choose.